Welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, your need-to-know cheat sheet for the week ahead in news and politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and joining me today is our very own in-house James Bond, Double O Doom, Doomsday Watch host, Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? Well, I'm much the better for that introduction. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> I like to get the uh, the big compliments in first thing on mm-hmm. a Monday. The rolling story at the moment is the report that an as-yet-unnamed BBC presenter is off-air due to having allegedly paid a teenager for explicit photos. Arthur, this is a complete legal minefield. Does it still shock you each time something like this happens that people don't realise social media is a very legally treacherous place? In a way, it doesn't shock me because I think when these sorts of stories come along, there's quite a lot of people for whom their life on social media doesn't overlap with the real world. And of course, that enables behaviours that people probably wouldn't dream of doing in real life. And of course, that's one of the problems with social media. And if you just think a few days ago, there was that flurry of of sort of speculation around George Osborne, obviously not going to walk into a minefield there. But again, people yeah. doing things online that were probably not very sensible. And, and I, I think until people start to understand that there can be real world consequences for online behaviour, I think this sort of thing will continue. Absolutely. We always talk about sort of online harms and regulating the way people act on on social media. But I do think there is some also need for for basic education on, you know, the myriad of things which can get you in quite a lot of quite a lot of trouble because it is very, very confusing if you if you don't realise. Yeah. So on the BBC story, it's been confirmed that there's a formal suspension and the Met Police have been contacted about the situation. But this took a you know it took a little bit of time for that to be confirmed after first reports came out about this. Does it feel to you that the BBC is always caught flat-footed in these circumstances or is it just such a big and prominent organization that it's clearly under such an intense level of scrutiny that that anything would feel too slow to us? I mean I think it's Obviously, we, we don't know enough detail. It would be easy to say, well, this looks a bit slow and a bit a bit sort of reluctant to respond appropriately. But maybe the BBC didn't know the identity of this person for a while. You know, there, there could be, or I say the BBC, you know, maybe the relevant managers or relevant yeah. disciplinary authority and so on. So I think that there could be a million and one reasons. And of course, the the reason that this is a subject of such public debate is in part because the BBC has become part of a political debate. And so this is inevitably politicised. And I think that's the point, really, because there are, you know, organisations have to deal with scummy members of staff all the time. Sadly, that's just, you know, that's real life. Yeah. But not many of those organisations are subject to an intense level of of political hostility. Yeah. Is that is that one of the slight things we should be looking out for in the coming week. We know that Lucy Frazier has spoken with the BBC, which seems completely fair enough and rational to me. But is there a concern that for some Conservatives, this will be used as a as part of a further, wider anti-BBC agenda, which will be conflated with these kind of issues? Well, I mean, I think there's no doubt about that at all. And of course, that's not to, for a moment to say that it's okay for someone in the BBC to behave in a inappropriate way or, or, you know, whatever the ghastly details of this story turns out to be. But it's just that it is very clear. There are inevitably people who want to politicise this because it's the BBC. Now, let's turn to a, a big week ahead for Rishi Sunak. He's got his American bestie, Biden, visiting today. What are they going to be talking about? I should think that 
there will be a lot of chat about NATO. I know we're going to come on to that. But of course, there are other sort of issues that Sunak's very keen to try to place Britain in a sort of forefront of AI regulation globally. And, and clearly, it's something that he has some level of personal connection with this subject. And, and I suspect he also sees a future for himself, in a post-political future for himself in, in some, some degree. He is an AI himself. Is well, that, yes, exactly. he's got that sort of, <laughs> sort of um, humorless kind of weird synthetic feel to him. I think there's, there is this slight thing where, the, you know, Biden's popping in largely to try to put to rest the rumours that Britain and America are not, you know, are not busies anymore. And so to some extent, they, they probably don't have a particularly full agenda, but that, that doesn't mean they won't have things to talk about. You know, there's loads of stuff, obviously, the UK and the US are close allies and, and there's loads of stuff to, to cover. Does it not seem to you, though, maybe that it, I think we've spoke about this before, that it seems a little bit desperate from Sunak, as you say, the kind of, I know you were joking there saying the rumours that America and the UK aren't best friends anymore, but is that not just empirically reality? Uh, we are not as powerful as we once were, so they, they simply can't kind of care about us in the way they once did. Yes, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it, it seems so simple and obvious. There's that point about us being less powerful, but also the point about the world shifting, you know, the so-called Pacific tilt, the fact that America, when it looks at the world, sees a lot both of challenge and opportunity to its west across the Pacific Ocean, whereas historically, you know, it looked to Europe, where many Americans of, of an earlier generation had their own roots. So, I mean, it's plainly, blindingly obvious, but somehow the, the British media and the British political class don't seem able to, to get, get beyond this rather simple fact. So following on from this meeting of minds there, there is also going to be a NATO meetup this week. What are you specifically looking out for? Well, this is a really significant summit. So it's being held in Vilnius in Lithuania. And obviously, that has a his historic sort of symbolic significance that it was once part of the Soviet Union and is now an independent state. It's part of NATO, it's part of the EU and so on. The really big question for this summit is Ukraine's membership aspirations. But the other big question, almost almost as big in any other summit, it would be the big question, is Sweden's membership aspirations. So funnily enough, I recall we, we, we did a live event, didn't we, the Ogwin live event earlier in the year. And I remember saying on the stage that I thought that even if Erdogan won the election in Turkey, it wouldn't be that simple and Sweden wouldn't find itself joining the alliance. And, and I, I stand by that because I think what Erdogan has realised is that by holding up Sweden, he's just got this amazing bit of leverage because every time anyone talks to him about anything, they're saying, oh, please, 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 will you let Sweden in, in, into NATO? And I mean, his objections to Sweden are absurd. There's, there's no credit to them whatsoever. But but it, it just it's if you're a sort of bloody minded, difficult person yeah. like Erdogan, then, then you can hold up Sweden. So So that's that bit. And then the Ukraine question, and this is huge, because ultimately, whilst in a way it was never a particularly realistic option, I think there has been allowed to grow a kind of expectation that this would be the summit at which Ukraine gets told, you're in, guys, well done, you, you've made it. And it's not going to happen. So there'll be a lot of debate and, and sort of rancor around this point. Now, of course, the reasons it's not going to happen, there are good and bad reasons. You know, a good reason might be the fact that Ukraine's at war with Russia. I personally actually think that that, that 
argument is overstated. You you could you could have a carve out. You could have you could have ways of involving a country in NATO without you know without us all being obliged to you know climb into our uniforms and deploy to Bakhmut next week. But that is a factor. I mean, basically, this the so called Article Five collective defence bit of the NATO treaty doesn't actually oblige an immediate declaration of war if one of the other members is attacked. It, it obliges you to take it as an attack on yourself. But it's, you know, there's room for interpretation and all these things. Is there kind of a, a direct split within NATO here? Is, it, is there a split between different countries or is it is it more complicated in that even countries who might feel sympathetic towards Ukraine are hesitant and it's more of a in between in each member state is not quite sure on where they want to go, which is not allowing for there to be any sort of consensus, if that makes sense. Where is the split? Well, it's very interesting because although America is is always, you know, traditionally the probably the more hawkish member, and of course in 2008, America was pushing for Ukraine to fully join NATO, but it's actually America now that's blocking Ukraine's membership. And obviously, if, if, if America's not up for it, it kind of doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. As it happens, the Germans are very reluctant and some other what you might call sort of usual suspects. And then the ones that want uh, Ukraine in NATO are, are the Eastern European countries, particularly uh, Poland and the Baltic states and so on. I think one of the problems, though, with, with the argument, so President Biden is, is obviously having to justify his arguments. And he's, he's talking a certain amount about the wider perspective of NATO membership, which is to do with democratic values, anti-corruption, those sorts of things. It's more than just, you know, what, what type of rifles your soldiers have. But the problem with that argument is that NATO has let in some very corrupt countries in the past, Montenegro. I mean, look at Hungary now, member of NATO, basically in bed with Russia, run, run by a corrupt dictator. So, you know, you have all these exceptions and, and you know, kind of special cases and and Ukraine will be thinking, well, what about our special case? You know, and, and and ultimately it's just not happening for them. And I think it throws up a wider question of what America wants for Ukraine in its war, which as as you'll know is is now five hundred days old. Is it strange as well that some of these countries which are making the argument against it are maybe countries that you'd think on a on a moral standpoint would be open to this, but they're having to use very practical arguments against it. And then obviously the countries which are, are completely f- for it, to me, it sounds like they are essentially the countries which are nearer to the crisis, so therefore have more of a, a practical, self-deterministic concern at the moment as well. Yeah, I, that's a really good observation. I mean, I think, you know, Biden's objections, there's one which is a practical security objection. And don't forget that, of course, he's running for re-election next year. And Probably, you know, running for an election when you're at war with Russia would be quite tough. So you can you can see why, even if it's a remote risk, he doesn't want to run that risk. And then you've got the more the more kind of bureaucratic objections I've mentioned about, you know, whether or not you judge the country is sufficiently developed and all the rest of it. But in a way, you know, what's so interesting about NATO is that you've got that America, you know, the United States as the by miles the, the biggest military power the biggest investor in in defense uh, the biggest provider of weapons to ukraine but also not directly affected by this conflict in any way you know it, it's um it's it's the other side of the atlantic and then you have the countries like germany now germany's not that far from russia and it's easy to be hypercritical of germany and say well you know why why are you always sort of pulling back and 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 not 
you know, not helping the Ukrainians in, unless you really push to it. But of course, Germany Germany has a geography that makes it feel rather exposed, and also a history, you know, a really pretty complicated history with warfare in Europe. So you you can see that the factors that weigh into all of this. But I think we have to see the NATO question in the context of the wider issues, like, you know, are the Ukrainians getting F sixteens, which they need if they if they're going to continue their fight? Are they getting adequate supplies of ammunition? All those sorts of questions, and and ultimately. Every country has questions to answer. You know, the Americans have not been helpful on the F-16 issue. The Europeans made big promises on, on ammunition and they haven't really delivered. So the real challenge is that all of our countries have had peacetime economies. We're not really equipped to uh, fight a war. And in a way, we are fighting a war, even if it's not our soldiers on the battlefield. More specifically on the war itself, it's been 500 days since Russia's invasion began. Of what are the key points you're looking at at the moment? Well, we're still looking at this this slow sort of grind away that the Ukrainians are doing in their so-called counteroffensive. And I think it's it's true to say that there has been some concern that they didn't they haven't made that much progress. They had to adapt their tactics. Initially, they were using armoured vehicles and they, a lot of those were getting blown up in Russian minefields. So they're now focusing more on infantry. And the idea is, you know, they're still trying to push to the main defensive lines that Russia has. So, so just to listeners get this, you know, this all of the counteroffensive that's happened so far hasn't yet reached Russia's main defensive lines in Ukraine. And so there's a long, long way to go. And it's a really slow business. And one might say, well, if you want it to be faster, you know, perhaps perhaps give them some aircraft or, or give them more, um, you know, more tanks or something like that. But but ultimately, that's there's, there's no point having that discussion now. You know, the Ukrainians are in it and, and they're still grinding away. And I think the fact that this war has now gone on for 500 days, it's a reminder that this, this thing may go very easily for another 500 days. What's happening with the Wagner Group at the moment? There was a lot of drama surrounding that a couple of weeks ago. And now, as as always seems to happen with anything linked to, to Russia, it becomes unclear and harder to get more definitive information out of it. But as best as you can you can tell, what's going on there? Yeah, well, as best as I can tell is, is the important point here. <laughs> I think it's pretty hard to know. The, initially, of course, we were told that Prigozhin was going to go to Belarus and various other Wagner fighters would join him there. And then the ones that didn't go would effectively be sort of rolled into the regular Russian military. And it's not clear that any of that stuff has happened. Various investigators have found that you can still call a Wagner recruiting office in Russia, you know, ring up a Russian line and someone will say, oh, yeah, we're still recruiting. You know, do you want to sign up? The evidence that, that Prigozhin went to Belarus is pretty thin. People have said he's there, but no one's proved it. The suggestions are that Wagner's still doing its stuff in Africa. So it's it's not 100% clear exactly what's happened. And it may prove that actually what took place here was a classic bit of kind of Russian kind of mafia state adventurism in the sense that various people took a liking to the assets and, and the sort of business contracts that the Wagner Group had and took hold of them. And the issue of the, the sort of attempted coup was almost a red herring in what was really a tussle over, you know, billions of dollars worth of resources.
Looping back to the UK now, there's going to be a little bit more fallout tied to everybody's favourite newspaper columnist, Boris Johnson. What privilege committee news are you looking out for this week? Yeah, so this is the bit where the Privilege Committee examined the role taken by the sort of Boris ultras, people like Rhys Mogg, Dorries and so on, who basically went around trying to intimidate people and undermine the, uh, you know, the, the credibility of the committee and its findings. And it seems likely that, that they will also then be criticised in, in the report that's come out. I think this is slightly different in, in the impact it'll have from the original report, because the original report was, it was very clearly about Boris Johnson's behaviour whilst Prime Minister in a position of considerable power and, and you know, the, the fact that he was blatantly a liar. And of course, everyone knew that he was a liar, but to have it spelled out in this formal way was was sort of cathartic. I feel with this thing, though, it's a bit different because, yes, it's un, unseemly in these sort of awful people with their GB News shows. But ultimately, they're all pretty marginal figures. You know, hardly anyone voted against the report in the House of Commons. Yes, lots of people abstained, but hardly anyone voted against. So I just wonder whether it will look a bit vindictive. And, and of course, that will be the argument. People like Rhys Mogg will say, oh, you're, you're, you're preventing public debate and criticism. And I, and I wonder whether actually that argument may, I'm not saying it holds water, but, but, but may get a bit of traction. So is it another case of, what we seem to see quite a lot with people, particularly on the right wing, is that the punishment is actually a bit of a reward for them, almost, yeah. because it lets them just keep talking complete crap. Yes, I mean, that's very well put. The punishment is a reward because it gives them a grievance. And it's this, the whole point of the sort of populist nationalist politics, that it's the politics of grievance. And, and of course, when you, you know, think of Jacob Rees-Mogg, you think, well, what have you got grievances about? You know, you're, you're the most privileged man <laughs> in Britain. But, but in, nevertheless, these people manage to manufacture these, these sort of grievances, and, and this will be one that they'll cling on to. On the, the Labour side of things, what is going on with this whole tree-huggers palaver that we saw in the, the Sunday Times, apparently Starmer having a bit of a, a problem with tree huggers. Is it just a right-wing paper trying to stir up trouble for a Labour incumbent who seems to be pretty much sailing towards number 10? Or is there some concern within Starmer facing more issues from kind of eco-leaning voters or members of the Labour Party? Well, I think it's important to pick apart the sort of different elements of this. According to a report in the Sunday Times, Starmer said words to the effect of, I hate tree huggers. Now, whilst Sunday Times is a serious newspaper, I don't for a moment find it credible that someone as cautious and as loyally as Keir Starmer would say that in a room with quite a lot of people in. So yeah. I'm, I'm very dubious about the report, full stop. But then the question about well, what's going on here? You know, there, there is clearly, there's a tension. Star Starmer is constantly doing this trimming between what you might call a sort of ideological left and a pragmatic election-winning left. And we've seen it, obviously, on, on the Brexit debate. You might say that's less of a left-right thing, but I mean, yeah. it's certainly, you know, there's, a, there's an ideological uh, view that many listeners to this podcast might share that we, we should go back to the EU. And then there's this sort of pragmatic idea that, that, that you shouldn't touch that debate. And it's, and it's now risen up with the environmental issue that, you know, Starmer, for example, said that, you know, he wasn't going to extend any drilling in the North Sea. And then the, the unions popped up 
who are of course the sort of the classic traditional labor support base and said well this this is going to undermine um you know uh, employment in in industrial sectors in this country so i think starmer it's it's possible to believe that starmer is getting a bit fed up of a slightly radical environmentalist wing that perhaps is not very plugged into sort of real world electoral success but i don't think i hate tree huggers is is the way he is would have expressed that opinion when it comes to that though there's this you know split within labor does it feel to you that every split within labor now is is framed as something that starmer has to completely quash which is just totally unrealistic a political party is always going to have different factions within it who will agree on some things and disagree on other things because ultimately you're talking about a party that will run a nation it it, it can't simply just all be on one page one track on every single issue so i mean it seems to me starmer has done pretty well in making labor a little bit more united and a bit more calm let's say but that doesn't mean he can make it entirely so no one ever disagrees. Yeah, and, and this sort of control freakery, which was very much a feature of the Tony Blair era, it's a bit disappointing to see it come back. The, the way that Starmer's people dominate selections for safe seats across the board, the way that there is this, that you know journalists find it impossible to, to do sort of fruitful interviews with with Labour frontbench figures because you know they're not allowed to say anything anymore, and again I think it comes back to the the caution. You know, Starmer is this sort of slow and steady, cautious type, and he he clearly wants to leave almost nothing to chance. But of course, all, all you then do is you do that just bottle up, you bottle up these resentments within your movement, and it seems to me that part of the story of the Corbyn era which was clearly disastrous for the Labour Party in electoral terms. But part of that story is a story about a a group within the Labour Party that had felt completely marginalised over decades. And then thinking, well, finally, we've got our chance and we're going to sort of we're going to try and do it 100 percent our way. And as, as you say, you know, all political parties are coalitions of different ideologies. And so in that sense, not to recognise that is is rather foolish, I think. If there are any Labour frontbenchers listening who feel particularly bottled up, I must extend the invitation of coming on to the bunker at any time to let it all out, should they wish to. Final point, Arthur, this ultra-low emission zone drama as well. Again, isn't this kind of another example of that people from the same party can occasionally disagree in that devolution is about giving power to decentralised areas? So they might not always agree with Labour Party headquarters on this. Well, right. I suppose the issue is the political class largely and the media class largely inhabits London. So, of course, you know, there are ultra low emission zones in Bristol, in, in uh, you know, Glasgow, in other cities around the place. And they may or may not be subjects of local controversy. But because of the way our media completely is dominated in London, that the one in London becomes the sort of national debate. And and then it makes it easy if if it is unpopular. I mean, I don't even know if it is popular or not. You you can hear people complain about it, but whether it's genuinely popular or unpopular, I don't know. But if, if it is unpopular, then it's another stick to beat Starmer with because it, it, it even though it's a, a local politics issue, it appears on the national stage. The one thing I would say is that when I hear someone interviewed on the radio saying, 
I can't pass on those costs to my customers. It seems to me that someone who doesn't quite understand how business works, because that's like what a business does is provide the service and then pass on, passes on those costs to their customers. And if if you're in, you know if you're operating in London, there are going to be certain costs of operation. And so I don't know. I, I it seems to me that it's one of these things that people people are very ready to have an opinion about, but I, 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 it's very hard to understand what the actual real kind of national opinion is. Arthur, thank you for joining me this morning. It's always a pleasure, John. Listeners, come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker and keep joining us every Monday to get a scope of the week ahead. A reminder, we'll also have a global roundup on Fridays with The Bunker Global and then an American deep dive with The Bunker USA on Saturdays. If you enjoy what we do, remember you can back us on Patreon for £3 a month to get our shows ad-free and early. You'll also get a shout out on this show. Here is Arthur with today's. Our thanks to Fraser Clark, Francis Kings and Chris Davies. Thanks again for joining us in The Bunker. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>